Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is gone this week, but I'm joined by a special return guest, Jennifer Rumbach, back way back, episode 79, titled Refugee. She was our guest and actually fan favorite. Did you know that? I, I didn't know that. Hi, Katie. People loved your episode. So Ma, can you take a moment to remind people who you were, what we were talking about that episode, and then we'll get into what you're up to now. Sure. So I'm Jennifer Rumbach. Um, I work for the International Organization for Migration. I do work on the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, which I think during the last episode I said no one knows what that is. Um, but of course now everyone's heard of the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. And I'm also the LGBTI focal point. Which means what? Uh, it means that I am in sort of the, the go-to person for all things LGBTI within my organization. Right. So when you're dealing with refugees, they're turning to you as the expert as how to deal with LGBT refugees. Yeah, so my organization works with refugees and also migrants. So if we have programs or offices that um, are working with LGBTI people or LGBTI themes, then they can come to me and ask questions. Right. So I remember last time we talked back at 79, which if you haven't heard it, go back and listen. It's a great episode. We were not only in front of a live audience at that point, but we were also talking about the program you were developing to try to educate people who are working with refugees. How is it going? It's what was the maybe you should say what the program is like it was quick recap sure so i developed a training package on working with lgbti we say persons of concern that's the phrase we use in the the jargon of the humanitarian world so that could be a refugee or a migrant or any other person um, that you're working with maybe in a humanitarian disaster or emergency so anyone who's a person of concern to your organization um, and so basically the training package teaches people how to work with lgbti persons of concern in a way that maintains their dignity and respect and also maintains the dignity and respect of the individuals who are doing the work. So basically making sure that they're comfortable and confident, knowing what to say to LGBTI people, knowing what not to say, knowing how to help them. It's sort of an operational toolkit is how we approach it, which works really well in cultures where um, there might not be as much cultural competency on LGBTI issues, which is a lot of places in the world that uh, we work in. So that's the training package. And I think last time we talked, it was just launching publicly. I did a version of it, a joint version of it with UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency. And it went online, I guess, late summer of 2015. And we're actually releasing a brand new version, which has now been professionally designed, which is awesome because last time I designed it myself, <laughs> did the PowerPoint um, design myself, which wasn't great. But luckily we were able to find the funding to hire a professional designer. And so now it's a very complete training package with infographics and posters and all kinds of things and yeah so it releases soon and meanwhile I've trained about 1500 people globally but I've also last year trained 22 people to give the training and I'm training 24 more in August in a couple of weeks so now we have trainings going on all over the world Uganda the Philippines Mexico Thailand Jordan, El Salvador, Ecuador, just everywhere. Mm -hmm. So the multiplying effect has been really awesome. Yeah, and I probably asked you back in the day, but why did you decide to develop this program? Were you seeing people sticking their foots in their mouths all the time? Was that what was going on? Yeah, so I, so uh, you'll remember from last time I was posted in Baghdad for three years. Yeah. And so when I was in Baghdad, it was 2009 to 2012, which sort of directly corresponded with this time in Iraq. Um, 
when LGBTI people were being really heavily persecuted, especially gay men. We started seeing people come into our office for our programming, which was an in-country resettlement, refugee resettlement program, and sharing their sexual orientation and sometimes gender identity with us. And this was really the first time that, that let's say, multiple people had been doing that. It wasn't just a one-off situation, but it was groups of people. And our staff members, I mean, quite frankly, they just didn't know what to do. And it wasn't necessarily that they didn't want to work with LGBTI people, but they just literally didn't have the cultural competency. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to react. And so that provokes a lot of really uncomfortable and inappropriate reactions. Like what? Over the years, uh, we so there's a section of the training called successful communication, where we learn how to react and what to say. But there's always sort of like a confession period in that part of the training where people sort of nervously come out with the things that they've done and said. And so, I mean, over the years, people have said that they laughed at people, that they sat there silently and acted like they didn't say anything, that they changed the subject. Staff members have said that they just got up and left the room and just left the person sitting in there. So just really things that we wouldn't want anyone to do to anyone in the context of an interview or meeting. But it's, it's, you know, it's not because they are necessarily prejudiced, although, of course, some people are do have prejudice. But it's just, you know, everybody wants to do their job professionally and they want to treat everyone with a certain level of dignity and professionalism. And they just sometimes don't know how to because they've never had someone say the words to them, I'm gay or I'm transgender or what I have same sex attraction or whatever it is. Yeah. And what about you, like working with so many varied people around the world? Is there any difficulty for you being the spearhead, the face of this particular program? You know, in terms of the staff that I've trained, no. I think that, and this is just a sort of an assumption that I'm making, which may not be true, but based on the way that people talk to me in the training, I'm pretty sure that 99% of them think I'm heterosexual. That's because they'll say things to me that I don't think they would say if they knew that I was queer. So, no, I don't have problems, but I also, to them, look like I'm not part of the LGBTI community. Like, I'm just someone who's, you know, just like your middle-of-the-road white lady who's just, like, coming to give training. Um, And I often wonder if there were more of a perception that I had an agenda or that I was doing some kind of advocacy work, which, of course, I do and I am, but it's not. It's presented in a very different way. I mean, the training is presented as, you know, we're not asking you to change your personal belief system whether that's your religious beliefs or cultural or social beliefs, but we're asking you to learn how to do your job well and to work with this population, which takes a lot of dedicated training because you haven't worked with this population before. So in that case, I think also people think about it less, whereas if it's a training where someone comes in and is advocating that people should feel a certain way about LGBTI populations, then there's probably more judgment rendered upon the trainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I should mention, since we can hear a leaf blower in the background, we are currently in Seattle in a little uh, cabin that Jen has rented. She's here to um, celebrate the 40th birthday of a mutual friend of ours, who is actually the person that made that first interview possible, a woman named Erin, who's a friend of mine from high school and a friend of yours from uh, what? Erin and I actually went to NYU together, but we didn't know each other then. But I hired her to work in the box office of the theater company where I was the box office manager. I think in like 2000. And she directed the one of the few plays in the last play that I wrote and had 
produced on stage. So. so we take this opportunity, since you're hardly ever in town, to sit down and talk again, evidenced by the fact that yeah. episode number 79 was the last time you were out. Yeah. yeah, two years ago. <laughs> so at that point, well, you had just gotten back from doing work in Nepal because of the earthquake, mm-hmm. but you were also feeling burned out. You'd been an expat for, I don't even know how long. Do you remember? Do you know how long ten you were? Years. About, well, it, at that point, it was almost 10 years. It had been almost 10 years. Yeah. yeah. 10 years and moving around to a, a bunch of different locations and you were burning out. You were feeling like you could never have a real relationship because you were always on the move and you were, I believe at that time, if you hadn't totally come home yet, you were thinking about coming home so what has happened so at that point I had moved I'm doing air quotes here I had moved back to the U.S. in late 2014 and it was for a five-year posting which I'm still on in my organization we rotate every three or five years depending on whether it's a hardship station or a non-hardship duty station so this is a five-year rotation and the posting was originally in D.C. Um, so I landed in late 2014 and it was a bit unclear at first how long I'd be in D.C. There was some thought that maybe I'd transferred to Geneva or somewhere else. Um, I ended up in New York, but I'll get to that later. And so I was sort of living in a temporary kind of situation apartment. Um, I started dating someone, which I talked about in the last podcast, and was feeling sort of, I think, a, somehow a bit more settled because I was just back in the U.S. And it's funny now when I look back that I described having felt burnt out because I don't think I was really burnt out overseas. I was just like burnt out on living in remote places overseas, which I realize now is a bit of a different experience than actually being burnt out. But I basically, air quotes, moved back and then just was traveling constantly. And I did get an apartment in D.C. in February of 2015. I lived in it for about a month. And then I ended up subletting it for a year because I just I was never back long enough to make sense to stay there. So when I saw you, I had just been doing Nepal earthquake response and had been in Geneva. And then after I saw you, I think I was just hopping around a bit from Geneva to different places where I was doing training. And because I'm part of the U.S. Refugee and Missions Program Global Management Team for IOM, we're having a lot of regional meetings at that time. I just got to the point where I was just living out of a suitcase for like weeks and months at a time. And then also trying to maintain this semblance of a personal life back in the U.S. because I felt now that I'm quote unquote back home, I should be able to do that. And it just got crazy. I mean, at one point I had a meeting in Uganda, a regional meeting for our Africa offices in Uganda. And then I had a training in Thailand the next week. And my girlfriend at the time had an event the weekend in between in New York. And so I left Uganda, flew back to New York, got to the event that night, stayed till the next day, and then got on a plane and flew to Thailand, back across through, you know, Doha to Bangkok. That sort of way of living just became normal. But then after a year of doing that, I think by early 2016, I was like, this is insane. Mm -hmm. I mean, Maybe some people can, you know, live this jet-setting lifestyle. I mean, at one point, I left a charger, like a phone charger in Doha at the Qatar airport, where I spent, I feel like, was my second home. And I went back a few days later, and, like, they had it, you know, and I got, <laughs> I got it from them. So it just was, you know, it was ridiculous. And so by early 2016, I spent, I think, the first two and a half months of that year I was in Nepal, I was back in Geneva, I was in Jordan twice. I spent my 40th birthday flying from Switzerland to Jordan, 
which was great because I got to celebrate in both countries with friends. I was back in Egypt. I was in Ecuador. And then I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And I wasn't really having a personal life and the relationship that I was in sort of ended probably, you know, partially because I was never able to be in one place for more than five seconds. Um, It was tough. And then at the same time, I think we mentioned last time I had some parasite issues going on, (laughs) which was a real pain in the neck uh, for anyone who's lived overseas and gotten parasites. You'll know what I'm talking about. But basically, the parasites in a way ended up helping me because my doctors that I was working with trying to get rid of them, which involves a lot of like not eating sugar and taking all of these tinctures and like different medicines. The parasites were kind of being really stubborn and sticking around and my doctor's finally got to the point where they they said, you know, it may be helpful to just stay in one place for a few months and try not to be constantly switching time zones and be jet lagged and be trying to do this autoimmune diet that I was on um, and do all of the supplements when you're constantly traveling. That was sort of an entree for me to tell my organization that I needed to take a break, which was great. I went on a trip to El Salvador, and then I didn't go anywhere for about three or four months. You stayed in El Salvador? No, no, I just went for a week. But that was my last sort of, that was like my last trip that I did. And then I just stuck around New York. And then I was working in New York temporarily, and I was able to then transfer to New York later that year. So things have been much calmer since then. So was it, were you sent to El Salvador as part of the work or was that like a vacation? I went to do training, actually. Okay. I just asked because it's so funny where you're like, I need to not go anywhere for a while. So I went to El Salvador. Went to El Salvador, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny how I justified it at the time because it was a new country. I'd never been to El Salvador. I have some good friends there that are, work with us and it was a new place to give training. So even though I'd already set a line in the sand that I was going to travel, it was like I couldn't pass up El Salvador. So... And it's actually only a four-hour flight from New York, same time zone. So I thought that's kind of a, an easy one. How do you do on these long flights? I mean, I've, I feel like I've really hacked the long flight thing. I have one particular seat that I will sit in on most airlines. <laughs> so it's just, I mean, I think that the seat probably won't work for everyone. But for me, I, the thing that I realized that I can't stand the most on like a 12 to 14-hour flight is someone pushing or kicking the back of my chair. I can deal with a lot of things, but that is one thing I can't deal with. So, I mean, I was flying mostly Qatar Airways. There's a seat that's like at the back of the middle section. It's the center aisle. So you have like usually three or four seats in the row there. And if you sit on the aisle seat, you have no one behind you. But because it's in the middle, that's not where the restrooms and like the galley is usually. Maybe there's one bathroom there, but it's not like the back of the plane where there's a lot of action. It's just kind of like a quiet middle area. Or maybe there's a galley, but no restroom, but it's usually not too chaotic. And I sit on the aisle because if there's two aisles in the middle, then people are less likely to bother you. So that's my seat. I go to great lengths to get that seat if I'm flying (laughs) long haul flights. Anything else that keeps you sort of sane and grounded during that, those long waiting periods? Are you, or do you get like some people, uh, I've talked to a few people where the older we get, the more they say, well, I like the plane. It's the time for me to be sit and watch movies or do whatever without being bothered. But yeah, I mean, I don't have kids yet. So I think that I feel like that's something after you have kids that you definitely maybe appreciate more. Well, I got to the point, especially when I was on this special diet where I would and I still do this where I will take my food on the plane I mean, when I was on the special diet, it got really nuts. Like I'd have like a whole foods cold bag full of like meals because the trip to Asia is, you know, 24 to 30 hours. But so that helps. I found not eating airline food and not drinking and, you know, trying to stay hydrated. I also 
got into really like trying to sleep along the way. So I came to prefer longer layovers, especially in the Doha airport, there's a gym and a hotel. And because if you're in a long transit, my office will pay for us to stay overnight there. So you can like work out and go swimming and stay in a hotel. And so it just makes, even though it elongates the trip, it makes it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. I understand most people don't have the capacity to do that because they're not traveling on an international organization's travel authorization, but I found that it helps. So yeah. So you're stabilized now. You're in New York. You're not having to go anywhere. Is that true or not, not true? Yeah, so I, in the last year, I have traveled a little bit. I actually went to Nepal on vacation, which was awesome because I'd never been there, not working. So that was great. I went on a short trip for a few days. And I've been, you know, to Geneva, Europe, mostly uh, here and there for work. But we've really dialed it back. Now, I mean, partially that's because after I sort of took my hiatus, you know, there was an election and... uh, The budget has been a bit in question, and so we have really put the brakes on international travel anyway. That sort of came at the same time that I was trying to slow down, which has been not great for a program, but um, in terms of the travel demands, they've lessened a lot. Yeah. So how has your job been affected by the, the most recent election in the United States, the election of Donald Trump as our president? Um. It's been a bit chaotic, let's say, for the program. I mean, I think that everybody knows about the executive order. Uh, well, not everybody listening knows about it. Do you want to give it in brief? Oh, yeah, okay, that's true. Um, so <laughs> shortly after the president came into office in January, the White House issued an executive order, which is quite lengthy, but one part of it basically said that the refugee resettlement program should be suspended for 120 days in its entirety. While they basically review the security protocols for the program. Now, the security protocols for the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program are among the most intensive and elaborate and extensive that we have in terms of immigration for this country. So refugees go through a whole host of different security processes, fingerprints and different security clearances from the time that they first enter our system, our pipeline, as we call it until they're on the plane and coming to America. It's a bit unclear about what reviewing the security protocols looks like, but in any event, that's basically what the executive order called for. And for an analysis to be done near the end of the 120 days and determine how to move forward. This is the same executive order that suspended visa issuance to individuals from seven nationalities. The part of the executive order that discussed refugees was suspended by the Ninth Circuit Court, and a lot has happened since then, but basically it was suspended, so refugee admissions continued, albeit at a slower pace, but they continued. And then the Supreme Court later stepped in and allowed for the executive order to go into effect, but with the caveat that persons with a bona fide, what's called a bona fide relationship to someone in the U.S. could continue to come. So basically any refugee who has an established relationship um, with a certain kind of relative in the U.S. has continued to come. So we've resettled over 50,000 refugees to the U.S. this year, this fiscal year, despite um, everything that's happened. And so, yeah, now we're just sort of looking forward to see what happens next year. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a time of uncertainty. Yeah. Have you seen any super negative ramifications from all this back and forth with the White House? I think that... I think one of the saddest things that I that I see is that refugees, especially, let's say, refugees of Middle Eastern origin, are less certain about coming to the U.S. and about what kind of reaction or welcome they'll get, 
which I find to be sad because the people that were resettling as refugees are fleeing the same terrorists and the same wars and conflicts that we all, you know, are trying to avoid. And I think there's an unfortunate idea out there that most refugees are like young men who are of like fighting age, who are single, who are prone to radicalization, et cetera. Whereas we're resettling families, we're resettling single women with children, we're resettling people who are survivors of torture, resettling people who have extensive family networks already in the US. So it's been disappointing to see all of the misinformation Mm -hmm. that's out there about the resettlement program and how people talk about refugees and and how dangerous they think they are. Yeah. Yeah. What has all this, from a personal standpoint, being in this business, moving around as much as you have, uh, where would you say that that puts you in life today? Has yeah. it taken like a toll? Has it been just as inspiring as ever? What's going on? I mean, you know, not to make the Donald Trump's election about me, but please do. <laughs> but I have to admit that there's a tiny part of me that that is like, you know, I finally got back to the U.S., which I had been ready to do for a couple of years. I was really feeling like the need to come home. And then I had like the slight hiccup of a year and a half of not actually being in the U.S. and just being on basically on an airplane the entire time. And then I finally sort of was able to take a break from that. And I was able to transfer to New York, which is where I'm from, where I have an apartment and I'm living in my apartment and I'm dating someone amazing. And I'm super happy to be home and to be back in Brooklyn And then Donald Trump gets elected and now my job is in jeopardy and I'm supposed to be in the U.S. until 2020 and now I don't know what's going to happen. That sucks. Yeah, It's just like, give me a break. I mean, for God's sakes. But, you know, and the other thing it brings up is that if for some reason, I mean, I'm hoping that the program will continue and that we'll resettle a good number of refugees next year, um, even if it's under increased scrutiny, that we'll keep doing the, the work that we're doing because it's really amazing and contributes a lot to America. But, you know, if for some reason the program is affected in a way that would affect my job, the question for me now is what do I do? Because the natural chain of events would be for me to go back overseas right away into another position with my organization. I'm just not sure if I'm ready for that. There are things I miss about being an expat, but I just feel like I'm in the middle of my break from being an expat. So Mm -hmm. it's brought up that question a lot sooner than I thought it would. What's one of the things that you miss about it? I sort of miss the ease of, I think that when you're overseas, it's very easy to sort of fall into a social group of people who are either also from, you know, different countries or are working in the same sector as you are and... There's something very easy and comfortable about it that maybe when I first moved overseas was a bit bewildering to me or took time to get used to. But it's something that I really value is how close you become to the people that you're living near and working with. It's just different back home. I don't know. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's hard to put into words, but people's lives are very different when they're just living in the country where they're from and they've lived here forever. I tend to gravitate, I've noticed, towards people who travel a lot, the person I'm dating right now is like an amazing adventurous traveler which i love because somehow that feels more comfortable and familiar to me yeah do you feel like you actually have a travel bug in you still like it would be hard for you to say stay in the same place like if you ended up staying in the united states the next 10 years yeah would that be hard for you i think so i think that if i were able to travel a lot that maybe it would be okay but 10 years feels like a long time to be in the U.S. What makes it feel long, though? 
there's just like something about being overseas in other countries that I really, it's that kind of like heightened reality that I think you get really addicted to. And that adrenaline and that sense of adventure. And it's hard to imagine going for 10 years without that. Maybe if I were doing, you know, working, uh, doing something where I was just traveling intermittently, then that would sort of satisfy that, sort of scratch that itch. But, you know, the thing is, is that in the long run, I do want to be in New York or in the US. Like, I don't want to live my whole life overseas. And that's something that I thought for a while, maybe I would want to do, but I've really come to realize that I don't. But I think that the idea of going out intermittently and living overseas is really nice. Yeah. Since you're from New York, you can't have that heightened awareness there. Do you think that that's true? That sort of more adrenaline heightened awareness of life thing? I think New York is a great city because I think in some ways you can. New York is always sort of throwing you curveballs. And so there is something that's exciting about living in New York. I don't know, though, because I've only ever lived in Indiana and New York. So it's hard to know (laughs) what it would be like living in different cities. Maybe it would be the same. But you do get into a pace and a rhythm that just feels different than I ever felt living overseas. I mean, I, I don't think that there was a country I lived in overseas, potentially because I never lived anywhere long enough. But there was nowhere that I lived where I really felt like this is home in the way that I feel about New York. Hmm. Yeah, there's like a comfortableness and a familiarity um, because I've been living there on and off since I was 18 that I've never replicated somewhere else. Yeah, I was thinking about you and... Um dating and all of this moving around that you do. I was reminded of my cousin who used to be a touring musician. And for years, I watched him kind of go in and out of every relationship because generally speaking, since he was always on the road, the person left at home was okay with it to a point. But then when it started being more and more and more, they just get to that like, come on, you know, it's like dating somebody long distance and all that jealousy of what are you doing on the road? Da, 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 da that comes in is that something that's affected your life you think that inconsistency and is there a way to manage that I guess because so many people who listen are always on the move and have to manage it somehow I think that if you're dating someone who is also on the move or has the same kind of lifestyle as you it's much easier and I, I think we talked about this last time a bit that I would tend to date people who also were in similar circumstances or the kinds of people who, for whatever reason, it worked for them, that they were dating someone who lived overseas or who traveled a lot. But yeah, if you're dating someone that just stays in one place, like most people do, it's difficult because, and I think the thing too with always being on the move and traveling and maybe I just don't have the constitution for going overseas once or twice a month. But I found that if I was overseas, I was overseas about, let's say, half to two thirds of the month. But then I found that I was dealing with jet lag and I was packing and unpacking like another week of the month. So there would be like two days of the month where I was just a normal person who is just like not jet lagged and not getting ready to go somewhere and not coming back from somewhere and not trying to catch up on everything and having missed, you know, X, Y and Z events. So then I'm trying to see all these people and that's tough for the person that you're with because that's a very small slice of normality. And then I think on the other hand, if you're dating someone who does live the same life as you, that's also difficult because trying to coordinate where you're going to go and to get posted in the same place or to find jobs in the same place. I mean, usually from what I've seen in my experience, one person has to kind of follow the other person. And so then it becomes a question of whether they want to do that. I don't know. I was just living in really remote, weird places like Baghdad and Eastern Nepal. And so I think my dating challenges were more because of that than because I was traveling constantly. But I know that when I came back to the U.S. and tried to have a relationship, 
there was just too much uncertainty. And the person I was dating at that time also had uncertainty in her life about where she would be moving to. And it was just, it was too stressful to try to coordinate that. One person has to have an extreme amount of certainty, but then also be really flexible. And that's just a lot to ask of one person. Yeah. So, Well, how, what does, how does longing play into that? The sort of desire to be together, but not being able to. Do you have a problem with that at all? I think that when you're longing to be with someone or to be living a certain kind of life overtakes the excitement of being on the road, then that's when you know that you need to go home or to go work somewhere mm-hmm. and just like sit down for a minute. <laughs> because when travel starts to feel tedious, then it's like a, the, all those hundreds of little inconveniences that happen start to bother you and that then it's no longer enjoyable. So when it becomes like, oh, let's go to Egypt again, you know. <laughs> then that's ridiculous. Then you know that you need to take a break. <laughs> so the person I'm dating now, I think one of the things that's really great is that she sort of gets that need to travel and she's super adventurous in travel and travel has traveled a lot alone and does things like she read a book about Martin Luther King and then just like went to Atlanta to see like all the Martin Luther King sites and, you know, has traveled in Asia and just all over the place. And so... The other thing that I, I think is really important is that you're not dating someone who's freaked out about the places that you're traveling to or who doesn't get why it's just totally normal to go to the Middle East and work there for a few weeks. Because if you're dating someone who either hasn't been to those places or who views them as somehow dangerous or problematic or whatever, then that, I think, is a strain. Okay, so speaking of you saying, oh, I have to go back to Egypt again. Is there is there any place that's like that where you would prefer in life to not have to go back? Just for you personally? To never go back to? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Jeez. Indiana? No, just kidding. <laughs> okay. Sorry, people in Indiana. I come to appreciate where I grew up in Indiana now in my <laughs> older age. I might have said that 10 years ago, but... um. You know, no, not really. I think because because of the work that I do, we tend to circulate back to the same places again and again. So we have big offices in Egypt, Jordan, Switzerland, Nepal, Latin America, Moscow, places like that. So for all of the travel I've done, the number of countries I've been to is still fairly modest um, because I tend to go back to the same places over and over again. But the great thing about that is I have friends in all of those places. And because of the way that the UN system works in the humanitarian world, it's like everywhere you go, you know someone who worked with you in X, Y, or Z place. I think that there was a point where I was like, if I have to get on one more 14-hour flight where I've already seen all the movies, then, you know, I'm going to cry. But I, I don't think there's a particular country that I wouldn't want to go back to. Where did you get your parasites from, do you know? <laughs> I think I got the first one in Ghana, I'm pretty sure, because I started having problems already when I was living in Iraq, and I think it was not from Iraq. I also, when I was first in Ghana, I was doing research in a refugee camp, very much relying on people to invite me into their homes and to talk to me about security issues in the camp. Of course, I was not going to refuse any of the food that I was offered, which I was always offered food. The refugee camp that is this particular refugee camp has a lot of issues with water sanitation. And so I got quite sick multiple times when I was there that first year. And so I think that that might be where that first parasite originates from. Because once I stopped eating in the refugee camp, because, you know, when you eat cooked food, it's fine. But if you're using water to like separate the foo-foo, which is often done, then you tend to get parasites and bacteria and different organisms in your food. So... 
That one I think I've been carrying for a while. That's the one that I still have, actually. I, I think that's my theory. Of course, I have no way of proving that, but <laughs> it's the one that's caused me the most problems, and it's the one. It's a highly resistant strain, so. And did quite extensive um, natural treatment for a couple of years and got rid of my other three parasites, but this one hung around. And then we tried to blast it with a month of antibiotics, two different antibiotics, and that didn't work. So right now I'm just taking a break and like hanging out with it and just seeing what happens. But I might have to go back in there and work on it more. But the other three, I feel like I probably got in Nepal because by that point, I was sort of susceptible to parasites, I think. And I'll just eat like any dirty street food, like anything. <laughs> I don't I don't have to have seen it cooked. It doesn't have to be hot. Someone's selling something on a corner, like I'll just I'll just eat it. Yeah. So it hasn't given you pause having these parasites. I like make a motion towards trying to be. Well, actually, no, I don't. What I usually do is like while I'm eating the d- dirty street food, I'm like, oh, this is how I got the parasites. <laughs> but not. I haven't really learned my lesson yet. And I don't, you know, you may just give me a look for this one, but is there anywhere that you're afraid to go to? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've never been drawn to going to places where I could get kidnapped. I have a particular fear of kidnapping, let's say, not an active fear, but maybe like a sort of like back of my mind fear that's mostly linked to the fact that I wear contacts and that I have really, I'm really, uh, I have really poor eyesight. I can't see without my contacts. I can see my hand a foot in front of my face and that's it. And I read a story once about that BBC journalist, Alan, Alan Johnson, I want to say. But anyway, he uh, was kidnapped in Palestine. And that was one of the things that he said in his story that stuck with me is that after a few days, his contacts dried up and fell out of his eyes. And he spent most of his captivity not being able to really see. Kidnapping in general sounds horrible for lots of other reasons beyond eyesight, but there's something about that that I always that always comes to mind. So I'm not the most interested in like going into Syria. I'm not the most interested in going into some parts of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say maybe the mountains of Pakistan. So yes, I don't remember what episode number it is, but if you go back and listen to the episode that's named Rakeen, I think. Uh-huh where Rakeen joins us to talk about his actual kidnapping in Afghanistan and how he ends up being a refugee in Rome. That'll scare you for... Yeah. No, kidnapping is no joke. Yeah. Yeah. Tip of the hat to you, Rakeen, because I know you're probably listening. But but yeah, after that story, it did give me pause. Uh, So one of the things I just want to touch on before we're out of time is... um, one of the things you mentioned in an email to me was that one thing that might be unexpected, but that you found in moving home was all of a sudden time seemed to be like flying by. Again. What's that like? And why do you think? Yeah, it's like the years that I lived in Baghdad, I felt like I was there for a decade. And I don't, I, I'm not sure why that is, but I, I, I've, one of you mentioned it on a podcast recently too, that time just sort of moves faster when you're at home. I think because you fall more easily into a rhythm and you stop having to pay attention so much to what's going on around you. For the first few months after I came home, I noticed that I do some odd things now that are considered odd in America just because I've been living overseas for so long. But I also noticed that I'd be in a situation and something would be happening and I would just totally misgauge what it was that was happening because I was basing it on a framework that was from a different country. And then I'd be like, oh, no, this isn't this isn't, you know, Jordan. Like, that's not what these people are arguing about. This is like a whole different situation. Uh, But then I found that after a few months, I sort of lapsed out of even paying attention. And so it's like if you're watching the same movie for the 50th time, like you stop maybe seeing so much detail or you see it. but It's so familiar to you that I don't know. It doesn't catch your mind in the same way. 
And also, I mean, this is true in a lot of countries, but especially in the US, it's such a smartphone culture. Everybody is just sucked into their devices all the time. And I definitely found myself falling a lot more into that than I, I was overseas. So I think that that makes time pass more quickly. What are some of the things that you do that's weird, that we would consider weird? <laughs> a while ago, I was in line at the airport behind this guy, and I guess I was standing incredibly close to him. I mean, I'm just, the last place I lived was Nepal, and in Nepal, there's no, there, it's funny, because people will queue. You'll be in a, a queue that's a very neat and orderly, but then as soon as whatever it is that's meant to happen happens, like the ticket agent comes to the counter, the queue just dissolves into this like mass of people. And me against like 50 Nepalis, I will be the last, even if I'm the very first in line when whatever happens, happens, I will be the last person to get that service. I mean, I just gave up. And I'm larger than a lot of Nepalis. So you think that like physically I could like get, get up there, but no, me against like 30 old Nepali women, there's no contest. They will get to the front of the line every time. So in South Asia, especially the sense of personal space is very different from here. And so I was, I guess I was standing incredibly close to this guy. And he finally turned around and said something about it. And I was like, oh, oh, sorry. And backed away a little bit. And then he went to put his thing on the belt to put his stuff into it. And I went up right behind him. And I guess I guess he thought I was really anxious and crowding him. But I was just like, I'm just trying to get through security. I mean, if you're not aggressive in a lot of countries, like you just won't ever get there. Like you just won't ever get through the security machine. So you learn to just push your way through. But he did not appreciate that. And he let me know. I guess I've been living overseas. I'm sorry. I don't I don't know what to tell you. But yeah. One of the things I learned in Italy is that if you want to get into the Pantheon, go around the crowd in the line waiting to get in and go in the exit. Yeah. And nobody thinks to do it, but the locals are doing it. That's so. smart. Yeah. Yeah. I actually cut in a line the other day, which I can't believe I did. <laughs> but yeah. And I was like, uh, overseas habits <laughs> excuse. <laughs> but yeah, I'm trying. There's some things I'm trying to work myself out of, like standing five inches from someone that's ahead of me um, or like getting way too close on the subway and stuff like that. But it takes a long time because it takes a long time to develop those habits, you know, to stop noticing that you feel weird that people are like, right up in your face it's gonna take a long time to undevelop them and then I'm gonna go back overseas and right. have to learn it all over again right. is there anything that stands out to you having spent so much of the last however many years away from the United States that stands out to you as something that we do particularly odd from your point of view I mean America is a really strange place <laughs> there's a lot of odd stuff going on here how Americans are very particular and it's almost like you're like constantly challenging them about how America is like not a great place and people want to defend it. And it's like, who are you? Who are you defending? You know, Amer- I mean, America is a great country. There, there's a, so many incredible things about the country. It's a beautiful country. It's diversity and it's a land of immigrants. And like we have amazing things here and things are efficient and like all of that. But people are kind of like act like they're under attack a lot. But I don't know from who because everybody else I know overseas is just like living their life. I don't know. I've become very sensitive since I moved back about how things have changed, which isn't really an oddity about America. It's more an oddity about me. But I have become like very insistent on only like shopping at the local family owned pharmacy and like not ordering anything on Amazon and making my poor girlfriend run around to five different places to try to find something which would just be easy to order online. You get it the next day just because I sort of perceive that America has gotten swept away by 
this rampant big box commercialism. I don't know. It's kind of my like protest against that, I guess. I just hate it. I can't stand it. And now like Amazon bought, bought Whole Foods, so I can't go to Whole Foods anymore. And I think it's my way of trying to slow down, even though it may be more inconvenient to live a life that's a bit more conscious than like having everything ordered by a button. Yeah. All right. So we should end. But I do want to ask what do you see or hope for yourself in the next year? Or let's imagine that it will be another two years before we get to talk again. What are you going to be hoping to do within that period of time? I hope to still be working on the U.S. refugee admissions program because I love it. And just for this next year, I'm really hoping to stay in New York because there's some great stuff going on in my personal life. And it's just better for me to be at home. And then I'm hoping that in a couple of years when it's time to think about going overseas again, that I'll be either feeling like super refreshed and ready to do it, or I'll just know really clearly that I want to stick around the U.S. longer and then I have to sort of opt out of this international organization life. I mean, I'm just, I, I think we discussed last time, like I'm incredibly lucky that I even got a posting in my home country because I'm an international civil servant and typically we don't get posted in our own country. So this is really sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity to be working for this organization doing the work that I do but then be in the U.S. so just sort of trying to enjoy that and hoping that I have options down the road and that I'm not suddenly figuring out how to become a freelance consultant which would also (laughs) maybe be great but we'll see oh no it's it has its challenges trust me well Jennifer Rombach thank you so much yeah thank you this is the bittersweet life I'm Katie Sewell visit the donate page on our website thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.